Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. Good morning to everyone up in our north site. We're glad you're here. Good morning to everyone watching and listening online. If you've got your Bible this morning, love you to turn to the book of Exodus. We'll eventually get there, Exodus chapter 14. We're still in our Take Heart series, and today, once again, we get the great privilege to look back to what the scriptures in Hebrew 11 call the great cloud of witnesses, back to the great hall of faith, to be inspired by those who actually know the same. God we know in this generation and to see how they lived faithful lives in their time so we can live faithful lives in our time, that we can be obedient and God-honoring, that we can be not only inspired though, we also can be reminded and guaranteed of coming reward in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we live between the past and the future, also understanding that God has not left us alone in this generation, but he has promised us us, that he will empower us to walk in this generation, in our neighborhood, in our families, in our, in our workplaces. Now, we've been taking quite a journey for the last few weeks. We've gone from Noah to Abraham to Joseph, and now today we land with one of the greatest biblical figures, actually one of the greatest historical figures in all time, the great man called Moses, the great lawgiver, the one that actually knew God and spoke to him face to face as a friend speaks to a friend. He stands out, of course, greatest and largest in all of Jewish history. Now, if you read Hebrews 11, much of that great hall of faith moment is relegated actually to the story of Moses. But I just want to focus on one small part. So let me read it to you this morning. Hebrews eleven twenty seven reads like this, by faith, Moses left Egypt Not fearing Pharaoh's anger, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the application of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Now that is one of the best mini summaries of the great Exodus story. And yet, the Exodus story does not begin, of course, at its endpoint. It begins where all stories do at its beginning. And it reads like this all the way back in Exodus 2.23. Here is the situation and the setting for what is about to take place. It says that the Israelites groaned. Why? Because of their slavery. And their cry went out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, to Yahweh himself. And God heard their groaning and he remembered, this is critical, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. So many of us are concerned and then we forget. We get concerned about something and then we move on. But God, when he declares that he is concerned, he never forgets. And remember, God says that he remembered his covenant. In other words, he remembered that he had chosen to, he had chose to marry these people. He was in relationship with these people. And so when they cried out, he looked at his wedding ring and said, I still love this group of people. And how does God respond when he says he remembers? It says that he chose a man named Moses. And Moses, there's a whole story there. Moses is sent and he goes now to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is commanded to let God's people go and he refuses. 
Warning after warning after warning is given time and time again through Aaron and Moses by a God. And he says to Pharaoh, you must do this. Why? Because Pharaoh has enslaved this group of people. And yet slavery itself, that is wrong in itself. But it's deeper than that. God actually owns these people. Pharaoh does not. And God is met with rebellion. And God is met with Pharaoh's hubris. And so with lots of warning and no repentance, God does not send one or two, but if you know the story, he sends nine plagues upon the Egyptians. The Nile is turned to blood. Just think about that for a moment, if you've ever seen a map of the Nile. For a moment, the whole thing is turned to rancid blood. Then he sends frogs. Then gnats actually spread across all of Egypt. Then flies. Then thousands of animals die. Then sores upon the people. Then hailstorm. Then locusts. And then an unnatural darkness stalks the people for a period. Now, each one of these plagues is a direct challenge to Pharaoh's authority, but it's deeper than that. Each one of these plagues, if you read it in context, is a direct challenge to the gods that Pharaoh swore his allegiance to. Each plague affects the Nile and the land, which showed that the various animal symbols of the gods of the Egyptians are overcome. Each plague was actually a declaration that the real, true spiritual forces behind the idols of Egypt were being and are overcome. The Egyptians prayed to these gods and asked them for safety and asked them to fight on their behalf. But God overcame them one and two and five and nine times. God himself was displaying in the Exodus that those real forces are false. Those real forces are not trustworthy. They are always defeated because there is only one God and his name is Yahweh and he's forever worshipped. Now what is the result of the nine plagues? Does Pharaoh give in and let these people who he did not own in the first place go? No. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the superpower of his day, digs his heels in, no matter the cost to his people, no matter the cost to his economy, no matter the cost to his own family. He will not yield. He will not give in. He will not bend his knee. So God, the creator, full of, hear this, mercy, gives again another opportunity for Pharaoh to repent. Not one plague had to strike the Egyptians, not one, and yet he would not bend. And so when he would not bend the last time, God says, if you do not bend, the worst plague, the tenth plague will come. Every firstborn male child and animal will die all in one evening. Do you want this? And Pharaoh said, get out. When this began to take place, God came to the Israelites and they were instructed to mark the doorposts of their home with the blood of a spring lamb. And upon seeing this, the spirit of God, when he would pass over Egypt and bring judgment, he would not touch them. Hence, this is where we get the Jewish celebration called what? Passover. Exodus twelve twelve. on that same night, I, God, will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And notice this, and I will bring judgments on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I am God. There is no one like me. I am God and nothing can stop me. There is no one like me in the heavens. There's no person, no nation, no military power, no amount of intellect or strategic planning can undo my plans. I am God and Pharaoh. You never have been. You never will be. You are made in my image. I am the potter. You are the clay. And since you choose not to bend, I now must move from mercy to judgment. I will break you. I will take the life of every person No matter how old or young, that is firstborn and male, both animal and person. 
Now, when we read this, sometimes we miss the power of this because in our minds, we think this is just referring to those young children who have just been born. No, no, it's deeper and more deadly than that. Every person who is firstborn who is male. So that means just brand new babies and children and adults and grandparents and the very aged. If you were the first boy in a family, you would be struck dead and also every single animal in that same stead. Now, again, before you deeply struggle with this, do not forget that God multiple times gave chances for this not to take place. And do not forget that the Hebrew people are married to and are owned by and are in relationship with God. The injustice is not actually with the Egyptians. It's with the Israelites. This is a true expression of real spiritual justice. This is the real result of social justice that so many people cry out for, even in our own world. This is deliverance and salvation. See, the exodus is a matter of life and death, and God is always a God of life, even to the Egyptians, if they had chosen it. And so in one night, it happened. The hundreds of thousands of people or more And possibly millions of animals. In 12 hours, they all die. In the middle of that night, in the middle of mass chaos and mourning and death and shock, over a million Jews are saved. This is the answer of their crying out for freedom. They have been crying out to God for 430 years. And now as the Hebrew people literally leave that night among the wailing of all of Egypt, God decides to do something new, something unexpected, something never seen or known. It reads like this in Exodus 13, 21. It says that God comes close. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And at night, by a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. See, this is called the Shekinah glory of God. And you've got to understand the power of this. This is the very dwelling place of God. God, who's omnipresent and all-knowing, becomes palpable. The transcendent becomes imminent. God comes close. Now, this very same glory, this cloud, this fire, this presence, this knowing, because he's right in front of you, is experienced time and time again. This is the same fire that Moses had already encountered at the burning bush. This is the same experience that later would be given at the Ten Commandments when the tabernacle and the temple were dedicated by Moses and by Solomon. It's the same fire that would descend from heaven and consume the altar when Elijah faced down the Baal prophets on Mount Carmel. It's the same glory that's seen in Isaiah and Ezekiel's call. It's the same glory we see in the Christmas story where the angels showed up to the shepherds and the glory of God shone around them and they were terrified and there was an announcement that Jesus was being born. This is the same fire. This is the same cloud and fire that descended on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John were walking with Jesus and suddenly they looked up and they saw Jesus in his glorified state. Oh, and there was Moses and Elijah there. And in that moment, it's the same glory. This is the same fire that came at the beginning of the church in Acts 2 when it says the Spirit of God filled a house and everyone had tongues of fire above their head. This is the same thing when Stephen, the first person to be killed for being a Christian, looked up and he saw Jesus before he was stoned to death. This is the same glory. And this is the same shocking glory that made Saul fall on his face before Jesus and become Paul, one of our greatest leaders. God, when he chooses to come close, always displays himself in his glory. 
So God, a good father, a faithful Lord, a faithful spouse, the one that remembers now comes to comfort his people. The Holy Spirit would guide them 24 hours a day, by cloud, by day, by fire, by night, and he is with them. God is among them, freeing them, and leading them. Now, it would be amazing. You just think about this. You, you and your family have been in bondage and true slavery for 430 years. And suddenly, in one night, in 12 hours, you are suddenly free. And you now see God in front of you for the first time. This is the most that God has been seen since the time of Adam and Eve. 24 hours earlier, you had never seen God. Now you see your Savior and also you are walking in freedom. It says that if you read the story, they travel for not one, but two, but three days, and they arrive in a very strategic place where they could now enter the desert and be fully free and never look back. And then this is where we arrive in Exodus 14. This is where God does something so seemingly stupid, seemingly so non-strategic, something so non-rational. This would be a mega leadership mistake that could lead to the Holocaust of these people. Exodus 14 run reads like this. If you've got your Bible, take it out and read it. Then the Lord said to Moses, three days into freedom only, that's it. Tell the Israelites to turn back. What? Turn the people around, and I want them to encamp near Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea. I want you to turn around. I want you to go back. I am choosing as God to move you backwards to the place that is so profoundly dangerous. I'm going to send you only three days into your freedom to the most unwise of places. I want you to go now and park up to possibly a million people in front of the Sea of Papyrus, the great famed Red Sea. Now I can imagine Moses saying to God, this is a very bad mistake. And God turning around and saying, no, no, let me tell you why. Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are wandering around in the land confused and hemmed in by the desert. He will say, look how stupid these slaves are. They're only slaves anyways. They've never had leadership. And we always think they're sort of subhuman anyway. Look where they've ended up. There's a mountain chain on one side, the sea on the other side, and we'll come behind them and we'll have them. And then God says these words, listen closely. I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue my people, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites obeyed. They did this. Now, when you hear that phrase that God chose to harden the heart of Pharaoh, if you're a thinking person and a wondering person, this, this strikes a chord in us. Is God the author of evil? Is God the one who's actually turning around and making Pharaoh sin? What does it mean that God hardens someone's heart? Well, it's interesting when you read the story because all the way back at the beginning, God warns of this. See, the hardening of a heart means this. When God takes his hands off a human and allows them to go their natural way, when even in a general sense, God says, I am going to now take my hands of protection off, you suddenly will become always hard and broken and rebellious. And so God says, I'm going to remove even my most general hands of grace. And then Pharaoh will act as he naturally will. But when he acts, he will know I am God. The Egyptians will know I am God. Actually, the world will know I am God. And I, God, am choosing to use Pharaoh's rebellion to my own glory. For who is like me on earth? And who is like me below the earth? And who is like me above? None, for no one can share in my glory. When the king of Egypt, verse 5, was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about this and said, what have we done? 
We have let the Israelites go and we've lost all their services. Now I want you to sit in this for a moment because we read it too quickly and too easily. After mass burials, can you imagine in Toronto if every single firstborn son suddenly died in one night? Think about it. The amount of mass burials, the amount of work that would have to be done, and it's not just children and grandchildren and also grandparents and fathers. It's more than that. Thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of animals are now dead. And so now we are in the middle of a mass health crisis in Egypt. And in the middle of this, suddenly the story takes a darker turn. Pharaoh stands up and he says these words, Why should we, the great nation on earth, the true superpower in the true sense of the world, why should we be afraid of this mixed rabble of indentured servants, these slaves, these Jews? So contradiction, so much contradiction. I'm bearing people and God did this. And yet why Pharaoh, so full of pain. Have you ever met someone like this? So full of bitterness and vengeance and anger and religious pride. He has been humiliated by a foreign God. He's been humiliated by slaves that he thought were nothing but animals. He has been humiliated by a former relative. Remember, Moses himself was a relative. He was so overwhelmed, including the loss of his own son, he now chooses to act out of a moment of rebellion. So blind he could not see, though he is the author of this, not God. He touched God's glory, and he's enslaved over a million people and thought that was okay. And he actually declared that he was God and God was not. And he declared that his gods were true and the true living God was not. He brought all this on, but no. No, no, this was Moses' fault or Yahweh's fault or someone else's fault. So now he is convinced that he must act. Oh, did he believe in the Hebrew God? Oh, 100%. Did he believe that this God had great power? He had no doubt about it. But isn't it interesting, though he had met him and encountered him, there was no conversion. See, let me just say this this morning. Hear this, everyone. You can know not just about God. You can encounter God. You can even know his power and still never change. Pharaoh turns around and says, I want my slaves back. I want my slaves back and I want them now. They base my economy in good place. They are the ones who give me financial comfort and support. Their slavery provides what I want and need. So I'm now going to show them they're going to never humiliate me again. They took my son, watch me take them. Verse 6. And so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. It says in verse 10 that when the Israelites saw this, they cried out unto the Lord. I want you to imagine this too. Suddenly up to a million people are sitting by the sea for the first time free. In 430 years, multiple generations had never, ever not known slavery. And for the first time, 72 hours, they are free. They're living their lives for the first time, not having to work without pay, not actually fearing being whipped for not doing the right job or or, or being abused in any way. For the first time, they had no routine grounded in injustice. And as they sat by the water free, suddenly... In the distance, a very large rumble. Soon it was understood that the Egyptian army was coming, chariots and foot soldiers. Let me make this very applicable today. This honestly would be like if the United States said, we're going to invade Canada and we're really going to do it. And we all go, ha ha, no, no, you just sit with that for a moment. If they really decided to come with everything they own, 
Because in its day, Egypt was the only superpower of its day. Chariots were the bombers of their day. They were the nuclear weapons of the day. He is coming, and so as the dust rises, panic begins to spread up to a million people. This newborn nation is about to be aborted. The enemy is coming. Slavery, death incarnate, years of slavery, physical bondage is around the corner again. But worse, they might not take them back into slavery. They might commit Holocaust and just kill them all. They don't know. Fear, alarmed, and now trapped. For there's on the west, there's high mountains, if you look at the geography. And in front of them, there is a sea. The Egyptians are behind them. There is no way out. Fear begins to distort their memory, arousing their passions. And as the enemy drew close, oh, the first thing they do is pray. Oh, God help us, but they don't really mean it. Within one verse, you will see that they don't believe in God. And they don't believe God will do anything. I want everyone, especially if you grew up in Sunday school, just to stop and really hear me. Because we missed this growing up in church. 72 hours later, they have lost all confidence in God. They have seen the nine plagues. They have just experienced the Passover. They still have all their children and animals. And here's the thing we missed in Sunday school most of the time. God is physically right there. They're looking at the cloud filled with fire that is unnatural. They are actually looking at God and they're seeing Moses and they three days earlier had been supernaturally set free. And though God is among them, literally among them, this is what they do. Verse 11, do they look up? Do they look, they look at Moses and say, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us, you, notice it, you brought us out here to die? What have you done, Moses, by bringing us out of Egypt? We're all going to die, and it's all your fault. Our babies and our mothers and our children are going to be cut in half and run over by chariots. You are the worst leader in history. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, listen to this, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in this desert. We shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have prayed. Freedom is too risky. There's no need to change. Better to have bondage than faith. Better to have slavery than death. I hate being a slave. Yes, I hate all of it. But I am, ready everyone, used to it. Better to be in pain. Better not to be free. Better actually only to think about God but not really know him. Better not to risk and have have no faith than trust in God. Oh, sure, they'd say, I know God's real. I've seen him do so much. I mean, he's right there, right? I mean, he's right there. I've seen his power to answer prayer. I've seen God overcome my enemies. I've seen him in the last few months do miracles. But now in this place, you're asking me to trust him fully. No, no. It's better to be a safe slave than to be a free people having to live on the edge. And our only hope is God. Here's the real heart of it. I'm used to being a slave, so I have to go back to my former life. I must shake hands with the devil and live with him again. Now, if there has ever been a leadership crisis in a country, I'd say this is one. And so you have up to a million people panicking. You have a superpower coming, and they have no clue what they're going to do. They have no true real army, though it mentions one. And they turn on their leader within 72 hours. And by turning on their leader, they've actually just turned on God. Because though he is among them, they do not trust him. 
Moses in that moment does something that is so profound, actually unhuman. He stands and he answers the people. Do not, what? Be afraid. You stand firm and you're going to see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. This is happening right now. The Egyptians you see, you're never going to see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be, I love this, still. Shh, everyone, and watch. See, sometimes we misunderstand the scriptures and we misunderstand our God. Oh, God is lovely and kind and he is full of love and compassion, but our God also is a warrior. God is a warrior and salvation is always his work. And by the way, this is why religion at its core is wrong. Religion teaches the world that if you're good enough, kind enough, holy enough, you will be saved by what you do and you will impress a living God. No, no. He is the God who starts salvation. He is the God that sustains salvation. He is the God that gives salvation. He is the God that holds salvation. You cannot lift a little finger to work at deliverance or salvation. All you must do is stop and accept what God is already doing for you. Stop and be still and watch the glory of God deliver his people. The human reaction to fear, and we've all faced it, is three things psychologists tell us. Fight, flight, right, or freeze. We want to run away, or we stop in the middle, and we decide with everything we have that we must fight, or we freeze and panic and die. And God comes, and he says to his people that he has just delivered, everyone breathe. Do not run. And do not think that you now can take out these Egyptians, because you cannot And do not freeze and panic and prepare to die. No, no. All I'm asking you to do is just stop and watch me win this for you. So in this moment of all moments, in the middle of faith and grand unbelief, mixing together like spring and salt water with everyone on the line and everything on the line, Moses one last time goes back towards the cloud, back towards God himself, and he begins to pray to God to act. And I absolutely love what God says. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move it. Move on. Get going. Moses, my ears are filling with your prayers. I have already answered. Stop praying. When's the last time a pastor told you to do that? Stop praying and get going. You have already been informed, so no act in trust. Moses, organize my people and go. Did I not tell you, Moses, to plant yourself here? This is the difference, by the way, between praying and command. We are always called to pray as Christians. But if, in a rare moment, God has told us what he is about to do, and we know it, we act. God has basically said to Moses, I've already given you my credit card, so would you just go use it, please, and stop asking me if you have permission. A few weeks ago, I was talking to my oldest daughter, my eight-year-old, and I was asking her if Jesus ever talks to her. And she said, well, not really, Dad, but it's interesting. This is my eight-year-old. She talks, it's interesting, Father. Yes, little one. She says um, these words. She says, sometimes in my dreams, very evil things show up. I'm like, yeah, that happens to all of us. She says, yeah, but it's interesting. That That's the moment when Jesus shows up in my dreams. I'm like, oh, tell me about that. She said, well, he gives me his power, and I use his power, and they always have to leave. And I'm like, really? She said, "Uh, let me explain this to you. Go ahead, please. Uh, Dr. Thompson, please sit down and listen. Uh, She says, it's like a library, Dad. This is my eight-year-old. It's like a library. When I go to the library, I don't own any library book, but I have permission to use it. She said, that's how God's power works. It's like his library and his book. He gives me his book. I get to use it. Then I have to give it back, and everything's good. I was like, whoa. 
Like, yes, yes, absolutely. Now she's all prideful. She thought about it. So that's a different issue. But anyway, it's great. But this is what Moses is Moses, stop praying. Go now. You raise your staff and you stretch out your hand over the sea and divide the water so the Israelites can go through to the sea on the dry ground. See, God has said he's going to do it, but Moses still must act. God has declared it, but he still must step out. And what's the stepping out as the representative of Israel? He raises his staff. Now, when you step out, God says, I'm going to save you, redeem you, judge your enemies. I am not just guide or guardian. I am warrior. Then verse 19, the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. God becomes the physical barrier. He becomes the rear guard. By the way, in your New Testament, when you read Ephesians 6 on the armor of God, there is no back armor. But let me reassure you this morning, oh, we have backing, and this is our God who always guards our back. He comes behind this army and he stands between them. And it says that he gives light to the Israelites and he gives darkness to the Egyptians. Verse 21, then Moses, anyone got Charlton Heston in their head? Then Moses stretched out his hands over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. And the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on their left. I mean, can you sense this and see this? A mixture of fire and cloud and light and darkness. A massive fire-filled cloud now moves behind you. A sea suddenly begins to be split in front of you. Can you hear and sense the howling wind? Can you understand that Moses has now walked through on a seabed? And you step out in faith as hundreds of thousands also do. You see Moses with his outstretched arms. And there may be 600,000, a million. Some scholars say me 1.5 million people pass through this muddy but dry gap. And as they're walking through, they literally are walking through the sea. And God is saving them in a way that is unnatural, unexplainable, and yet is so much like our God. Will this Pharaoh give up when he is actually confronted by God himself, by a literal cloud filled with fire? He does not. He is so filled with hate and anger and death. It says in verse 25, the Egyptians pursued them and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them in the sea. And I love this. And during the last watch of the night, God looked down from the pillar of fire. I love this. He has to even look down to see where Pharaoh's at. And he looked at the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw them into confusion. And then God personally comes to Moses and says, now this is your last task today. Stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters will flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. And at that moment, if you read the scriptures, when Moses did this, it says that not one of the Egyptians survived. Not one of them survived the moment. Now, this is a real historic occurrence, but actually this is the greatest or one of the greatest foreshadows of our whole faith. This is rooted in history, and yet this also was a picture given to us to prepare the world for the best exodus. See, we always need to ask the question as Christians or seekers or journeyers this morning, how does this find its fulfillment in God's ultimate plan? And actually, though our country is very uncomfortable with this, and so is the human heart, it is the most graphic, honest picture of the human condition. Every single human being, it says according to the scriptures, is in Egypt, whether they know it or not. 
This is the picture of every human being, seven billion of us right now. This is what it is like not to know God. You can be good or kind or lovely or religious or the opposite, but the Bible says that we are enslaved to sin, to death, and to Satan. See, without God through Jesus, we are dead in our sins. It says that we cannot not sin. We always end up going towards theft or pride or adultery or anger or fill in the blank or greed or gossip. We as human beings, without an intervention with God, we are dead in our sins and we cannot contain ourselves. We always end up being sinful. And not only that, the Bible says that death is 100% guaranteed. Every single person here, including myself, all of you online, everyone sitting in the north, everyone listening, Every one of us is going to end up in a box one day. Every single one of us is going to die or be cremated. And the Bible says not only are we enslaved to sin, and not only is death 100 guaranteed, it also says that Satan, whether you believe in him or not, if you do not know God, you are owned by him positionally because Adam and Eve gave him the keys to the family. Yet God looks upon the world in its Egypt state. And because he is a God of mercy... And sees us in his, in our bondage and our slavery. He sends a greater, actually the greatest Moses to lead us out. And his name we all know is what? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest exodus. Now I love this. Jesus comes and does exactly what actually Moses did. Jesus walks right up to Pharaoh eye to eye and he confronts him. He confronts the Pharaoh of sin. He confronts death in the faith and, and breaks its power. And he confronts Satan and all of his hordes one-on-one and takes them out. See, Jesus is the greater Moses who took the power of God because he isn't just a prophet. He is the God of the pillar of fire and, and the cloud. And he walks and he faces our pharaohs and he says, I defeat you and I defeat you and I defeat you. Not only is Jesus the greater Moses, and not only has Jesus come to do battle and has overcome sin and broken the power of death because he's physically raised from the dead, and according to Colossians 2, he's made a mockery and he stripped the evil one of his power, he also is our Passover lamb. His blood is poured over the doorposts of our life when we embrace him. That's the amazing work of Jesus on the cross. He is the one who says, I now apply my work over your doorposts. And so when judgment comes, you are covered, owned, loved, called. You are made a people already. This is why Peter, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Or what did Peter say in 1 Peter 18? We learned this this year. For you know if you're a Christian... It is not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed. What's redeemed? Bought out of slavery from that empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, from your mom and dad. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so when death comes, it cannot overcome the blood of the lamb. And when Pharaoh comes to take us back to Egypt, Jesus is our rear guard and Jesus leads us at the same time. See, Jesus is the greatest Moses. Jesus is our greatest Passover lamb. And here's the other thing. Jesus is the one who leads us and commands us into the Red Sea. See, the Red Sea is the greatest foreshadow in the Old Testament of baptism. After, and I want you to notice the chronology, after you are saved you get baptized. It is the outward declaration of the inward work. The Red Sea demonstrates a salvation that had been given already at 
Passover. See, by the time they go through the Red Sea, they are already called the people of God. They are already in covenant with God. They are already saved and marked by the blood of God through a spring lamb. They, the judgment of God has already what? passed over them, and they have already exited Egypt. They have left Egypt. Baptism is the sign of what's already happened to us. We are covered. We are redeemed. Only those who have left Pharaoh's grip and Pharaoh's work and I left Egypt, they are the ones who walk through the Red Sea. Now, let me say this. Again, we say this all the time, but I mean this. We believe the scriptures when it says every Christian is called to be baptized in water. It doesn't save you, but it is the grand declaration that Pharaoh doesn't own you, that you're no longer part of that slave experience, and that you belong to a new people in a new country. Now, we're doing baptisms next week, and I just want to say this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you have met the greater Moses, and you've experienced the Passover in the greatest sense, and you have exited Egypt, you need to stand up, and whether it's guilt or shame or fear, no, 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 none of it's relevant anymore. You need to stand up, and you need to say in this tank next week or in the north where you are, you need to say, Pharaoh doesn't own me. I'm part of the Exodus. I've met the Passover lamb, and I want to declare my freedom before you in heaven, and we all need to celebrate your freedom. And so if you are a person who has not obeyed, and it's amazing how many people have been Christians for years, and it is embarrassment or fear that stops you. No, no. God has saved you out of Egypt. We need to celebrate that freedom on your behalf. Get your donkey in the tank, like Dave says, and let us stand with you and celebrate this freedom. No, really. This is a command of Jesus Christ because it is a moment not of shame. It's a moment of celebration. So after this service, if you have not obeyed baptism, go right out there and say, I'm getting in the water. If you're online, tweet us and Instagram us, any form of anything. If you're in the north, the same thing. Because baptism is the last act when you have been redeemed by God. It matters. It builds the faith of people and encourages the community. The gospel is contained in this story, but there's more. When we read the story of Moses and we see the great working of faith, There's a few other things we need to remind ourselves of that matter on Monday and on Wednesday and on Friday of next week. Did you notice that the story begins by God sending them to the wrong place at the wrong time to actually be trapped by people who could kill them? Like God is the one who instructs them to go to the place of death, not life. And God does this for a reason, to set them up. No, no. He does this so they will grow in their what? Faith. God sovereignly ordains a moment of fear. So they're hurt, no, to build faith. Why does it matter? Because number one, people of God need to know God is real. They need to see the hand of God come through. But it's deeper than that. I want you all to think this morning about your parents or your neighbors or your connect group or your children if you have them or your friends or grandchildren. One of the most important things that you can give a faith community is actually your story of how God came through in history. See, God intentionally and sovereignly in moments of our life puts us in the dangerous place so we see his hand and then we write it down. And so in the future, are you listening? In the future, when another dangerous moment comes or a great act of faith is needed, you will know that God will come through because he's done it and he's been trustworthy in the past. Anyone would say amen? 
And deeper than that, you can actually tell other people who are struggling. In the Psalms, in Psalm 77, David is crying out. He says, I cried to God for help. I cried to God for help to hear me. And when I was in distress, I sought God. At night, I stretched out my untiring hands to be comfort. And then he said, then I thought, this is what I will appeal to. The years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember his miracles long ago. And if you read verse 20, he says that you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here's the point. Hundreds of years later, David and the psalmist were brought back to the moment of the exodus to encourage them to keep walking. What you need to do if you want to take home this week is go home and actually write out every moment where God came through when there was nothing else you could do and it had to be God. Write it out because when you write that out in your life, number one, you will be encouraged and blown away of how much you've forgotten the goodness of God. And then you need to go and you need to go to your connect group and say, I need to tell you when God made me sit by a sea that was dangerous. And I want to tell you what God did. And by the way, parents, if you've not shared these stories with your children, you need to share them this week because they need to know that God is real in your life. And if you are grandparents, you need to see this is a gift we are squandering in this church. God makes us sit in dangerous places. So when he acts, we can write them down. And so in the future, we can know he's trustworthy and we can inspire others to keep walking in their faith. Faithfulness is grounded in intervention and intervention is done by a good God. We have the call to baptism. We have the great goodness of God. But here's another thing. As I was preparing this week and praying and wrestling, it's like this next thing is so important. And I don't even know if it's just for one person. But if this is the moment to lean in, I'd lean in now. Because as I wrestled, and I believe it's for every service, by the way. See, the the great danger, the dark side of this story, is actually how the people acted. Their first instinct was to go back and become a slave again. Though God was literally among them, And God had been proven. And so many of us, I mean, it's the normal application of the text. Don't go back to Egypt. Uh, Don't go back and start living like, no, but here's what God is saying in this moment. There is someone here. And I'm not saying this just for the moment. I mean this. There is someone here now in this very room. There's someone actually in the north right now. And this is, this is God speaking to you right now. He is saying to you, I know what you are thinking and doing. I know you think it's easier to be a slave to the sin that you've left. Or to give allegiance back again to Satan or walk in death. Or that your pain you think is too strong and so you should just go back. This is like going back to an abuser. You hate it, you want out, but you're used to it. And so pain and bondage is comfortable because you have become comfortable with it. And God in this holy moment is saying, no, No, you don't go back. You don't do the things of Egypt anymore. I am good and I am trustworthy. You are called, whoever you are, repent right now. Whether you're planning to cheat or steal or leave your husband or wife or have an affair, I have no clue what it is. God is saying to you, no, no, you live a holy life. You know the love of Jesus is better than Egypt. 
lordship to Jesus and obedience to Jesus over sin, we give up what we even want that feels good because we know the reward is greater. Hebrews 11.24, this is a phrase for whoever this person is. By faith, Moses, when he grew up, he refused to be known as the, Pharaoh's, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated. He suffered alongside with the people of God. Rather, here it is. Rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, whoever this is for this morning, it is fleeting. What you want to do or go do or what you're tempted to do or what you've started, it is fleeting. There is no life. It is poison. Moses, it says, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. God at this moment, not out of what he is in love saying to whoever you are, no, do not go back. Do not give in to the pleasures of sin. Repent right now, for Egypt always brings death. But God, when you're alone with him in the desert, does amazing things, and you've been made to know him and not Pharaoh any longer. Repent now and be free. The gospel and baptism, the goodness of God, The goodness of God recorded for generations. God's kind, loving intervention in this moment for someone here or a group. And here's the last thing I end with. I always ask God before I preach, is there anything you want to say to the whole family? And much of the time there isn't. He just wants us to be faithful and obey his word and be encouraged. But there are moments where God decides to speak to the community. And this is one of these moments. And I just want to say it like this. As we near summer, C4, as some of you are watching from cottages right now, I feel constrained to share this with our family. As I shared a few months ago, we are in a very healthy place as a church in many ways. And actually, we're sort of in this lull moment. It's not a bad lull. It's not because of sin or lack of momentum. It's sovereign And as we are sitting in this lull and we're preparing for what is about to come, I think this is what God, the same God that met with Moses, wants to say to C4 uniquely in this moment. So as we prepare for this coming year, let me just give you some thoughts. As we are going to send people to India again to encourage our brothers and sisters in very difficult places and learn from them. As we next year begin to pray and prepare and discern where our next site is going to be launched. As we, you don't know this yet, as we're about to call this whole church to a new level of evangelism we have probably not seen in years. As the physical changes begin to happen across this church, so more and more children and youth can be reached with the good news of Jesus. As we continue to meet week in and week out in our connect groups as we serve, as we continually help the poor in this church every week. And as I've declared, and it has been affirmed by multiple witnesses, And as the next wave of the Holy Spirit will come upon us and there will be another great group of conversions like like there was a few years ago and signs and wonders will be experienced in this church as all of this is about to happen in God's timetable and we prepare for this. Here are the words. Number one, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, C4. You just need to be still. God is going to do things again like he's done here before. Sovereignly, he's going to save people that we would never expect to be saved. The baptism tank will be filled again. 
Signs and wonders will happen again. I'm not preaching this because I want this and I'm crying. No, no. God is going to do this. God is going to continue to do things. He's going to lead us again to a new site and more people are going to come to faith. Do you know that a whole family converted this week? Just think, no, a whole family together came to Christ. And that's going to happen more and more. And so I just want to say to you as one of your pastors, all we must do is be still and know he is going to do the stuff we could never do. But here's the other thing, verse 15. Moses, why do you keep crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. So here's what I want to leave you in the middle of this gap. We will be still and watch God do things we can never do. But as one of your leaders, I'm telling you, everyone get ready to move again. Because when God moves, whether it's in September or tomorrow or right now or halfway through next year, I don't know his time. When he does, we as a church must be ready to move again because when he moves, more great things will be done. And so let me pray that we would be prepared to do those things. Lord, God of heaven and earth, hear our prayer now. Number one, Lord, we pray and thank you for your exodus in our life. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for his blood and being the greater Moses and giving us deliverance. Thank you. Lord, for those who have not been baptized, for any reason, I pray now, Holy Spirit, not my conviction, tell them, tell them to obey Jesus and fill the tank next week with people declaring that Pharaoh no longer wins and Egypt no longer is home. Lord, for us who have to take time to begin to think through all the great things you've done in our life. Would you inspire people to do that? And may you orchestrate stories to inspire others to keep going. Lord, for the one person in this room or a small group that you've just confronted out of love, oh God, bring them to repentance right now. Spare them from a multitude of sins because you're a good father. Oh God, let them know. And I want to declare this to whoever you are. I want to declare that if you confess your sin, you are forgiven because our God is mercy. And lastly, Lord, I pray for our whole church, even on this long weekend. Lord, we stand with expectation. We will be still and watch you do things we cannot do. Can anyone say amen to that? But we also will say, though comfort is something we always struggle with, Lord, we will be ready to move in any way you tell us to do as a family. All glory be to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.